What's up, everybody? Good morning. For those of you who don't know, my name is Jason Lalone, and uh, I serve as a pastor here at Park. And uh, I'm just so glad to be in the house this morning. It's good to be gathered together with God's people. Amen. This is the best part of my week is Sunday morning. And we are pressing on into our study through the letter to Galatians in which we've titled Stay the Course. So if you have your Bible with you this morning or your cell phone, turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 11 through 21. If you're using one of the house Bibles that you got on the way in, it's going to be on page 973. And as always here at Park, if you're a guest here with us this morning and you don't own a Bible, make sure to take one home with you as a small gift from us. We are once again so glad that you're here with us today. In 1961, James Meredith, an African-American Air Force veteran, was inspired by President John F. Kennedy's inaugural address in which he declared no less than the rights of all men came from God. Which was big talk in the midst of the civil rights movement, so determined to put those words to the test and with the backing of the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court ruling in 1954, which determined that the segregation of public schools was unconstitutional, Meredith began the process for enrollment at the University of Mississippi. But the problem was that the University of Mississippi, some seven plus years after the Supreme Court ruling, were still only admitting white students because of its deeply embedded culture of racism and segregation. Yet believing he had a divine responsibility before God, Meredith wrote that he wasn't just doing it merely for the sake of himself, but also for his country his race, and his family. He went on to even say, I am familiar with the probable difficulties involved in such a move as I am undertaking, and I am fully prepared to pursue it all the way to a degree from the University of Mississippi. While severe opposition and protests from segregationists and federal and state forces came to a head on September 29, 1962, when 300 people were injured and two people died during a mob in what was notoriously named the Battle of Oxford on the university's campus. Yet Meredith pushed forward and he enrolled in school two days later, despite being under the shadow of Mississippi Governor Ross Barnett's declaration that there has been no case in history where the Caucasian race has survived another integration. And so as you can imagine, during Meredith's time on campus, he was harassed as students living in the dorm rooms above him would bounce basketballs on the floor during all hours of the night. He was called despicable names. And he was ostracized. For example, whenever he would go into the lunch cafeteria for a meal, upon entering, all the students would turn their backs on him. Or if he sat down at a table, they would all get up and move to another. That's not how it's supposed to be. The Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court ruling declared so. The Declaration of Independence stated, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. But I think today will remind us that there's nothing really new under the sun, if you know what I mean. People are people. And sometimes even the best of us can act like the worst of us. For some 1,900 years earlier, there was another clash that erupted, but this time it was at a church potluck. Which brings us to our text this morning. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word, which you'll also see above me on the screen. Hear God's word to us this morning. But when Cephas, that is Peter, if you remember, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas and before them all, 
If you, though a, a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like a Jew? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is then Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were attained through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here's our big idea this morning. The justifying gospel is a unifying gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for our time together this morning as your people coming before your living and active word. And that when we become before you and we hear your word, we're listening to you talk to us. And Father, I ask now that you would deal with us. That you would find us be before you on our knees, just yearning and desiring to hear from you because you've made known to us the path of life. And there is fullness of joy in your presence. Would you guide and direct us? Would your spirit do the work? Holy Spirit, the work that you do and shaping us, and correcting us, and encouraging us, and moving us forward as we grow in Christ and are shaped by the word and are transformed more and more until we see the Lord Jesus face to face. Bind us together in love and unity. May we be reminded of the gospel this morning. May we cling to it wholeheartedly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the justifying gospel is a unifying gospel. So what in the world is going on here in Antioch? Well, let's get a little background of the city first. Antioch, which you see on the map, was in the northwest region of what is now modern-day Syria. And like Chicago is in the U.S., it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, which undoubtedly made it very influential. With a population of a half a million people, it was dubbed the Rome of the East. And I want to remind us why cities are influential and that Chicago is a very influential city. Because in the city, this is where commerce takes place. This is where cultural life is shaped. This is where communication goes out. This is where government happens, where decisions are made, which can affect not only our state, but also the country and also the globe. What happens in the city of Chicago is a big deal, and Antioch was a big deal. And again, much like Chicago, it was a melting pot of diverse people and culture, which inherently made it an awesome place to plant a church to be the church, and to put on display the power of the gospel and bringing Jews and Gentiles together as one. And that's what was happening. The church in Antioch was groundbreakingly multi-ethnic. If you were to look back in Acts chapter 13, you would see that his pastoral leadership team was made up of at least four nations. Unlike the church in Jerusalem, it wasn't predominantly Jewish in its makeup, which caused those outside of the church to call this kind of mixed bag of people Christians for the first time. And it was because they couldn't be exclusively tagged as being ritually Jewish or traditionally Baptist or wildly charismatic. 
or even non-denominational. They were Christians. And what unified that diverse church was that they all belonged to Christ, is what the word Christian meant. It's, or you could say that they were slaves of Christ. It was a term that was meant to be derogatory, but it came to be cherished. It's been passed down to us some 2,000 years later. Oh, what a great thing to be called as a Christian. And it wasn't their sameness, it was rather their oneness which distinguished them from the west of the world. And they were on mission too. This is what's really great. It was the church in Antioch that commissioned Paul to, and, and Barnabas to go out on their first missionary journey to reach those who Paul is writing to in this letter. But we've got a problem in Antioch from an unexpected source. Our boy Peter, the rock of the church, fell back into some of his same old ways, which undermine the truth of the gospel. You see, Peter, at the beginning of his visit in Antioch, really sensed the freedom of, that he had in Christ of not having to eat kosher anymore. He was enjoying really sweet table fellowship with the Gentiles. He was eating bacon and eggs for breakfast a ham sandwich at lunch, and he was turning the spit at the pig roast. He was undoubtedly saying to himself during these times, wow, man, I've been missing out. My food palate has been weak. And these Gentiles, you know what? They aren't so bad after all. You know, I used to think that they were just a bunch of street dogs and that my people were far superior to them in their humanness, but now I see what these guys have to offer. And you know what? They really love Jesus too, and the Holy Spirit resides in them as well. Peter seemed to be really getting it early on. But disruptive circumstances have a way of drawing out responses which really reflect what's going on deep down in the heart. It's easy to sit in the stadium as a Packers fan and go buck wild when they're playing the Bears at Lambeau. But when you've got to travel to Soldier Field, well, you tend to be a little bit more dialed down, if you know what I mean. Unless maybe you had a six-pack. That didn't land. I went for it. I didn't put it in my notes, but I went for it. <clears throat> you see, what happened was, is that this Jewish James gang, they came to, from Jerusalem and they paid a visit to the church in Antioch and in fear, Jewish Peter turned his back on the Gentiles at the dinner table and he caused other people to follow suit so much so that even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the one who traveled with Paul and planting churches in Gentile regions, even Barney was led astray. Now what was Peter fearful of? Because it says it right in the text, right? I mean, this is where, you, you know, we got this thing, you know, when we preach and we get together to prepare for our messages, sometimes together as pastors, what's the heart condition to address, right? And in the text, it's all right there. Fear. What is Peter fearful of? Paul says that he was fearful of the circumcision party, who were a segment of Judaizers who we've been talking about, who believed that you had to obey the law of Moses in order to be justified before God, and who were running around harassing people who didn't follow suit. And I want to acknowledge here at this point, it's very important, a lot of people a lot smarter than me have taken Peter to have good intentions by moving to another table in order to protect this Jewish James gang and others back in Jerusalem from being persecuted by this certain circumcision group if they found out that they had been eating with Gentiles, which was no small thing, by the way, for them. 
This eating with unclean people issue was a big fuss about Jesus, if you remember. He would go to the homes of tax collectors and the prostitutes would be there and invalids, the unclean, and he would dine with them. And the religious leaders would say, oh, look at him. He eats with sinners. To share a meal with someone in that context and culture signified genuine acceptance. It meant a lot more than it means to a lot of us today. Sadly, a lot of times now we just get together with people for dinner to strike the deal. And the circumcision crew, just like the University of Mississippi in 1962, wouldn't be too fond of this integration. This integration of the unclean. And so Peter may have had some of this in mind, but I think there's a whole lot more going on here with him. You know, Theologians and exegetes talked about the burden of proof of Scripture where you can just put all the kind of the Scripture together and that's where you get your evidence of kind of what's happening and to help you determine what's going on in the text. But we as humans tend to be a little bit more complex and have other variables that can affect our decision-making, can't we? You know what I think Peter's doing here? If I put it all together, I think he's pulling the dilly-dally. He's pulling the shilly-shally, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Peter, right here, he got caught slipping, man. Because remember Peter? Vacillating was a part of his character. Remember when he's on walking on water for crying out loud in the boat and he has his eyes on Jesus' first, but then he's looking at the waves and he began to sink. Remember that, Peter? Remember that, Peter, when the slave girl said, hey, you were hanging out with Jesus. He said, no, not me. I never knew him. Remember that, Peter? That Peter who, when Jesus talked to him about what was going to ha happen to him at the end of his life, just couldn't help thinking about what in the world's going to happen to John. And then... There's the deeply embedded ethnic identity and prejudice that had the potential to affect his actions. Hear me on this. I am not, this is not a pick on for Jews, by the way. I just want you to know that. This is just, this is just what we're dealing with here in the text. Some of us have grown up and things have been embedded and pushed into us that were so bad. Remember, Jews were taught growing up as little boys and girls that you don't associate with Gentiles. They were taught that they were the kind of the pure race, so to speak. They were the holy ones set apart from God. And that Gentiles, if you were to associate with them, it got to the point where they would infect you with their impurities. I mean, this was so embedded in Peter that he had to get a vision from heaven. In Acts chapter 10, this is after Jesus died and resurrected and after he preached a thunderous sermon where thousands of people came to faith in Christ. He got this vision of heaven where this giant sheet came down from heaven with all sorts of animals on it and even those that were considered unclean, signifying that the Gentiles were accepted before God. And Peter wasn't having anything of it at first. And Jesus had to say to him, Peter... Don't you call unclean what God has made pure. So if, if you put it all together here, you have a conflicted Peter. If you notice, he and the other Jews had already been eating with the Gentiles. But when another certain group came, which he was more familiar with, along with his temptation to vacillate and combined with a measure of racial, superi racial superiority, influenced him to turn his back and move to another table. And Paul checked him on it. 
immediately and openly. And if you follow the flow, chapter 1 and 2, he continues to establish his authority as an apostle. Because if you're checking Peter, that means you got some serious clout. The gospel trumps it all. That, up until this point, is what Paul is seeking to establish and remind the Galatians of. Clear? In a sense, Paul was saying, which side of your mouth are you talking out of, Peter? You need to put a stake in the ground of where you stand with the gospel. Quit being soft. You're supposed to be the rock of the church, and you're floating like a feather. What you should fear is not persecution from those of the circumcision party, but rather you should fear losing the gospel, which is to be justified, to be declared not guilty by Christ alone and nothing added. Persecution is temporary, but losing the gospel, that is eternal. And you, being a leader of the church, Peter, are influencing people in the wrong direction. Take off your mask in the play. You're acting like a hypocrite. As you can see, I mean, for Paul, this was no fluffy peace at any price issue. This was a gospel at all costs issue. And what this incident, what this incident teaches us is that the purity of the gospel is not shown merely in its content, but also in its application. The purity of the gospel is not shown just merely in its content, like a Nicene Creed or but it's shown in its application. It is possible to affirm all of the right doctrine in your head and deny it with your actions. Right belief doesn't necessarily lead to right behavior. Trust me. Peter knew the gospel's content. That you are justified, you're in the courtroom, God's heavenly courtroom, and you're justified, you're declared not guilty through faith in Christ. He knew that, but he wasn't straight walking in the truth. By his actions, he was effectively saying that salvation is back to being accomplished by effort and that you have to do or avoid something on top of trusting in Christ. And secondarily, he was communicating by his actions ethnic and cultural superiority. And that the only way to do church was to go back and be culturally Jewish. Which would, by implications, make the Gentiles second-class Christians. And so the only proper response to a racist is a rebuke. Some of you may say, whoa, Jason, <laughs> that seems to be a little bit over the top. Not really. In its most basic sense, racism is believing that your ethnicity is superior to another and then enforcing that belief. We don't have a whole lot of time to talk about all those ways, but it can happen individually, systemically, all those things. And there are different levels of this, and this happens all over the world with all sorts of different kinds of people. But for us, it's just... 
because we live in the U.S., it's the, the black and white issue is so up in front of our face all the time and because it's so a part of our history. It's really simple and easy if you open your eyes to see how it's been enforced. Slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, incarceration rates. And I'm fearful some of you are sick of hearing about this, but it is in our face. Educational opportunities and resources, name-calling and moving to other tables or other parts of the neighborhood. But if you think about it, I hope that we do think about it, is that all of these actions, they're really on the surface of things. Because the real get-to-the-heart issue here is fear. Really, any sort of segregating ourselves or elevating ourselves above others is rooted in fear. Maybe it's fear of being persecuted if you take a stand. But let's get to the nitty-gritty. Maybe it's fear of losing power. Fear of losing influence. Fear of becoming an outsider. Fear of losing some sort of status. Or fear of what's having to face of what's really going on in your heart. That if we're honest, that we all have biases and prejudices and things that we deal with. Are you honest and open to take a look in your heart? Are you fearful of that? Or do you just run from the conversation or just dismiss it or say, not me? What is it that keeps you back? It's fear. On a lighter note, this segregating and elevating ourselves can show up in the most ridiculous of ways. When I go back home and visit my brother in Maple Rapids, Michigan, population 600, it's a showdown with the boys as to who drives what. And you know what it is? Chevy versus Ford. They literally seek to one-up each other. It is quite a show. If you know about small-town life, you know that's exactly what's happening. One fellow will say something along the lines of, I just got a black Chevy Silverado, 2500 HD with six-ton towing capacity. And it growls as I rumble through the gravel pit. And in the background, it's as if the old Chevy commercial is playing like a rock. Strong as I could be. But then another guy will come back with, oh, please, I'm built for tough here. You should take a ride in my blue Ford F450 with six-speed auto transmission, which can tow 10 tons. On top of that, I recently got an 18-inch lift kit installed and Yosemite Sam mud flaps on the behind my rear tires. Now what? This stuff really happens. <laughs> I know all the lingo, man. For 12 years, I was doing it in Maple Rapids, Michigan, wearing my camo. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I wasn't wearing the camo. I didn't go there. And so you can imagine me when I roll into town in my Toyota Corolla. Oh, Jay, look at you, city slicker. You're so weak. Nice car, man. I get no love from the Chevy or Ford people. Here's the deal. I think we are quick and desirous 
and want to swiftly understand that the gospel gets us right with God. But we are much slower and much more reluctant to understand that the gospel gets us right with one another. The gospel brings Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, Chevy and Ford, together as one new man. All the while keeping our wonderful distinctiveness in order to put on display the scope of his redemption. One class and one color and one culture cannot capture by themselves the stop and stare beauty of God's glory. And the gospel of his kingdom does much more than just bring a bunch of different people together. A game of basketball or a trip to Target can do that. The gospel of the kingdom brings a whole bunch of different kinds of people together that lay down their lives for one another. May it be so. Amen. I think Peter reminds us here too that we're all in process, right? And from time to time, we all need someone speaking into our mess. And to stand up for the gospel because in this moment, what Peter lacked, Paul possessed. He lacked, Paul had the, the courage of his convictions. Ah! <laughs> we need others to say to us, you're not really living out who you are in Christ. We need each other to call us up into our, our heavenly status, don't we? We need each other. Call us up. Call us up. Don't let us hang out in that stuff. Don't, don't let us make our lives appear that Jesus isn't the greatest thing in the world. Call us up. Call us up. And I'm so thankful for people like that in my life. Yeah, I might not want to hear it right away or hear it right then. But down the road, I know those are the people who really love me. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Hear this. We are being Christ-like in our love, not when mere tolerance is our highest ethic, but rather when we graciously confront others when God's good design is being undermined. Tolerance as a highest ethic is pathetic. Everybody just do what you want and don't bother me. Really? Is that what you read? Is that the Christ that you know? Praise God for those who graciously confront us when God's good design is being undermined in our lives. Those who call us up, who have the courage and the, the love to do so. Let's pull over for a moment and let's go to the pastor's office. Just for a minute, just pull over to the side here. Let's get some coaching on confrontation, though. Uh, because we just can't go out and start confronting folks. Hey, hey, caught you. <laughs> and I confess in this confrontation thing, I've failed miserably at in the past. I have Paul's personality where I just come out swinging, if you know what I mean. Is anybody else in here like that? Somebody lying so bad. <laughs> I know you, I've had confrontations, you're not walking in line with the gospel. 
am I all alone? Please don't leave me up here by myself. So a couple hands raised, just a few. I'll take a few. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Here's some principles I think that will help us when we have to confront. And I'd encourage you to write them down or in your phone. One, pray. I'm serious, pray. If you've got to enter into a difficult discussion or confrontation, ask God to be your help and your wisdom. He shows up in those moments. It's so good. Pray for wisdom and kindness. Second, make sure that it's a gospel issue and not some preference that you have. It doesn't matter if you like the electric guitar over the acoustic. That's a preference. That's not a gospel issue. Three, do it face to face. Not a text or an anonymous email. Or a social media blast. Or a gossip to your friend. Or a veiled dig at a prayer meeting. In Christ's name and in his power, be courageous and go to the person face to face. Stop spreading crap. Four, do it in love. Have a gracious and gentle tone. Because we all know we can be in that same place too. Here's some principles for receiving. Giving, receiving. One, pray. Dear God, I see her coming. When she speaks, let me not jump over this table at her. Be my help. Two, set in your mind to let your confronters be your coaches. Yes, they might not get it right all the time. They might say all the right things in a wrong tone maybe, or you just might not be feeling it. Take it in and process nonetheless. There's going to be something there for you, right? Proverbs 15, 31. Let's get into the wisdom book of the Bible. He who listens to a life-giving rebuke will be at home among the wise. Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke impresses a man of discernment more than 100 lashes, a fool. Three, be humble. Just listen. And four, they're closely related. This is kind of a charge. Sometimes got to preach this to myself. Ask Lindsay when she gets in my kitchen. Stop being so sensitive. How could you? What? I'm not perfect? I have room to grow? This sensitivity thing, I think it's a cousin to a narcissist. kind of just about me. I'm the greatest thing happening here. How dare someone check me on something? We are all in this from time to time, aren't we? So let's do our confronting and receiving well, which is in itself, is in of itself a picture of the gospel, Right? For when we were confronted with our sin and our need, that's when we were then available and open to receive 
the good news. Who would have thought that a confrontation would put on display the glory of the gospel? How we do life with one another and reconcile in relationships is a visible picture of the good news. We have the power to do it and do it better than anyone. So let's get back on the road, okay? We kind of hung out in the pastor's office. Let's get back on the road as we get ready to close and seek to bridge the gap from Antioch's context to ours. What are some other ways that we may be tempted to segregate ourselves as a church and in turn undermine the power of the gospel? Now, I, I seriously, on Friday after, early afternoon, when I was thinking about this, this point here, it literally probably only took me 30 seconds to come up with this list, which is amazing. Okay, that's the Holy Spirit, but it's also not a good testimony because I know a lot of people in churches and pastors and a lot of people in our church and parks, a big church, all sorts of spaces and places. So went to Bible college, Bible seminary, went, oh, I did it all, okay? Know a lot of Christians and a lot of the way we operate, including myself. So this did not take long to come up with this list. Lee and I were talking about this first point a couple weeks ago and together. It's, we undermine the unifying power of the gospel when churches or individuals elevate advice over biblical commands. For example, some parents homeschool their kids. Some send to private school. Some send to public school. Well done. Good job, everyone. Way to go. But here's the issue. I have heard a public school parent dissing a homeschool parent because their children seem to be a little bit more socially awkward. And on the other end, I've been a part of a conversation where the homeschool parent said to the public school parent, so you're going to let Satan raise your kids? I can't let that one go. I'm a public school parent. So I say, yeah, you know what, man, you know what? Rather than playing checkers, you know what the kids do? They play with the Ouija boards, you know? And all the teachers, you know, they're just a bunch of witches and they're making witches stew and sacrificing pigeons. I don't know. They're doing all sorts of stuff. <laughs> but another way is when churches undermine the unifying power of the gospel is when we stress distinctions rather than gospel truth. For example, and here's where the list started coming. We're more holy because we sing hymns rather than contemporary songs. We put on a more polished service at our church. Our church has more people, so it must be blessed by God. Well, our church is small, so the big church has got to be a sellout. We really make disciples here in our small church. We're a praying church. We're a word church. We're a worshiping church. Yeah, I want to be that church too. The wealthy church is the evil empire. The poor church, they're weak on their doctrine. We're musically expressive. We really worship. We're musically reserved. We actually think about the words that we're singing. And then there's the political persuasion church. How can you be a Christian and be a Democrat? How can you be a Christian and be a Republican? And on and on it goes. It is exhausting. Friends, family, 
We divide ourselves into divisions when we say, I am white, black, brown. I'm Ford. I'm a Democrat. I'm American first. Before I'm a Christian first. And our only hope to bust out of that funk which undermines the unifying power of the gospel is the justifying gospel itself. That is our primary identity as followers of Jesus. After Paul does really an overkill on justification in verses 15 through 19 to set up what he's going to unpack further in the letter, it's really a big introduction on justification. I'm sorry we didn't have a whole lot of time to get through some of that part. He gives us the right medicine in verse 20. Look at it. Are you able to say it? I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What does this mean? Did you know that there were four things that were nailed to the cross? Jesus was nailed to the cross. His hands and his feet. There was a sign up above him that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was nailed to the cross. In Colossians chapter 2, it says that our rap sheet in every way that we'd broken the law, that was nailed to the cross. What's the fourth? You were nailed to the cross. By your spiritual union in Christ, when Christ died, so did you. You are now dead to your sin, dead to yourself, and dead to the world. And now Christ lives in you by his spirit, which raised him and you from the dead. And just as you trusted in Christ in the beginning, you now walk out your new life in that same trust, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. And he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. And he has given us what we need to be unified because we've all been justified. Christ is our identity first, and everything else is second. Do you see yourself up on that cross? That you are dead to the old man and the old woman who has a bent on elevating and segregating yourselves. And it's because he loved you and he gave himself for you. Your redemption was not secured by some impersonal force, but rather through the one who lavished his unmerited, immeasurable, infinite, and self-sacrificing love. That is the only love that can keep us together and bring us together. As the old song goes, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Love so amazing, so divine, 
demands my soul, my life, my all. The justifying gospel is a unifying gospel which demands all of us to take it out to the world around us. If we lose the gospel, then we lose our mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word where we see the gospel on every page. It reminds us that we don't have to earn. We don't have to avoid in order to be declared righteous before you. But it's that those things, that we do those things as a follow-up because we are trusting in Christ alone. Father, I pray that you continue to do a deep work in our hearts, that our grip would be tight to the cross. And glorying in Jesus, our author and perfecter of our faith. Father, may we be reminded once again that your gospel goes much further than our own individual justification, but it unifies us together as brothers and sisters. And it also puts on display in the cosmos for angels and demons to see that the power of the gospel is bringing and uniting all things together and the whole thing is being redone. So I pray that you give us a great hope this morning, something that we receive that we walk out the doors with to share with the world. Continue to unite us in Christ's love, that immeasurable, infinite, self-sacrificing love. May that mark our lives as your people, as this community in the far north side of Chicago. May Jesus be honored all throughout it all. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.